Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Friday, January 12th. Israel has been at war for 98 days. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to yet another episode of the FDD Morning Brief. Last night was a busy night in the Middle East. The war has expanded further. The U.S. and the U.K. finally responded to Iran-backed Houthi aggression in the Red Sea. As always, the FDD team was tracking all the actions, so you didn't have to. I'm fairly certain that's why you tune in to the FDD Morning Brief, at least I hope that's why. This morning, I'll be joined by Anat Wilf, a former member of the Knesset in Israel and a former advisor to the great Shimon Peres. But before we chat with Anat, let's take a look at what happened in the Red Sea last night. After no less than 27 different attacks by the Iran-backed Houthis on vessels transiting this waterway, the U.S. has responded. The Brits joined in last night, too. Citing the need to secure freedom of navigation in the Red Sea, which is one of the world's most important waterways for vessels transiting the Suez Canal, the U.S. struck multiple sites across Yemen, including the capital Sana'a, the port of Hodeidah, the city of Taiz, and more. This operation was long overdue. The Houthis had it coming, but I have to say, I feel for the people of Yemen. I actually visited that country in 2004. It is amazing. The beauty is really hard to describe, and the country felt like it was frozen in another time, another era. Sadly, the country has really collapsed since the Arab Spring. Yemen has been reeling from a civil war for more than a decade now, and the country has known nothing but misery, and now even more misery. This is all thanks to the Islamic Republic of Iran, wherever the regime inserts its proxies. In this case, we're talking about the Houthis. Whenever that happens, misery is sure to follow. Does this scenario sound familiar? It should. Iran backs Hamas. Look at Gaza. Iran backs Hezbollah in Lebanon. Look at what's happened to that country since 2006. Iran backs Shiite militias in Iraq. Look at what's happened there for the last 20 years. Let me just say this as clearly as I can. The Islamic Republic of Iran is a blight on the Middle East. This is a regime that has brought nothing but war and misery upon the region for years. Everyone in the Middle East knows it. Everyone in Washington knows it. And yet, the regime in Iran is yet to pay a price for the destruction that it has wrought in the Middle East from day one of the Islamic Revolution that brought this disgusting regime to power in 1979. It has yet to pay a price for the horrific violence that has only spread across the Middle East since October 7th. I obviously understand the need to target Hamas or the Houthis or Hezbollah, but none of this is going to solve the problem when Iran is the root cause. Okay, getting down off my soapbox here onto the other three big stories of today. Headline one, Iran seized a Marshall Islands flagged oil tanker in the Gulf of Oman. Here's what happened. Masked armed men boarded the St. Nicholas yesterday and ordered it to sail to an Iranian port. The regime said this was in retaliation for the confiscation of oil by the U.S. last year. There's a little bit of irony here. This oil tanker was actually headed to Turkey, which is a country that has helped Iran evade sanctions over the years. In fact, $20 billion plus of sanctions evasion. Of course, Turkey is also a partner in supporting Hamas. Whoops. So now what? 
This is all part of a wider war that the regime in Iran has sparked across the region. And make no mistake, in addition to kinetic warfare, this is an economic war. Traffic at the Suez Canal is down a whopping 40% right now. That's not good. The United States cannot stand by while international trade is threatened in the Middle East. And after the strikes on the Houthis last night, it's anyone's guess what comes next. Headline two, Israel is fighting against the charge of genocide at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Orwell would be proud. Israel was attacked by Hamas, a self-proclaimed genocidal terrorist group. That group is sponsored by the regime in Iran, which has literally called for the destruction of Israel too many times to count. And the regime has deployed more than a dozen proxy groups that share the same goal. Israel responds, as any country would, to the slaughter of its own people. This is, of course, a war that Israel didn't start. And now it's forced to defend itself at The Hague. You cannot make this stuff up. Oh, and South Africa is the country that brought these ridiculous charges. When I was a Treasury analyst some 15 years ago tracking illicit finance, South Africa was a safe haven for a number of Hamas financiers. I wonder how many there are today. So now what? The ICJ has actually never found a country guilty of genocide before. If Israel is the first case, it'll tell us a lot about the ICJ. It'll tell us a lot about the international system. Unfortunately, the ICJ is part of a network of morally bankrupt multilateral organizations. But if you're looking for a silver lining, the Israelis sent former Supreme Court Justice Aharon Barak to fight these absurd charges. Barak was vilified just months ago by members of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition because Barak was the one who endowed the Supreme Court with powers that they wanted to weaken. But Barack and Netanyahu now understand that their bickering means very little given the stakes of this case. Israel remains remarkably unified in the face of a widening array of enemies post-October 7th. And finally, headline three, a blockbuster report from Politico suggests that Qatar had advanced knowledge of 10-7. Here's the skinny. Western intelligence officials spoke with Politico on condition of anonymity. They revealed what I always suspected to be true, that Qatar knew more about the plans for the 10-7 slaughter than it let on. I'm not surprised. Are you? I mean, it was the Qataris who insisted that their money, their $30 million a month, was necessary to sustain calm in Gaza. That calm lasted more than nine years, by my count. But during those nine years, Hamas was able to build a massive underground military infrastructure and to train for the 10-7 attacks. We can thank the Qataris for that. So what's my take? You know my take. Qatar is a state sponsor of terrorism. Full stop. The U.S. needs to start treating this rotten, tiny little state of terror as such. That means ending its status as a major non-NATO ally. That means pulling up our airbase and moving it elsewhere. Oh, and the Israelis have to face facts too. The Qataris have no business serving as the channel for the Israeli hostage families. That's got to stop too. Okay, those are your headlines. I'm now pleased to welcome Einat Wilf from Israel. Einat is an author, a former lawmaker, a former advisor to the late Shimon Peres. She's got a lot to say about what's going on in the Middle East right now. Welcome, Einat. Thank you for having me. All right, well, let's get to it. I want to start with what everyone in Israel is watching right now. I've been watching it on Israeli TV all morning. What is your sense of how the ICJ case is going for Israel? What is your sense of how this thing's going to end? 
to understand how the case is going, we need to understand the various levels at which it's operating. On the pure legal front, after Israel presented its case today and seems to have presented it very well with specific attention to the legal arguments, uh, on that sense, it seems quite clear that there's absolutely no case against Israel. But one needs to understand the deeper level of what's going on. And in this case, it actually does not matter what Israel says, because the general purpose of what's going on here, and in many ways that has already been achieved before Israel presented one minute of its case, is to launder through the International Court of Justice the process which I've called the placard strategy. The placard strategy is the process of equating Israel, Zionism, sometimes just to starve David, with all of the world's evils. Uh, you know it because you see it on placards in anti-Israel demonstrations that are created like equations. Israel, Zionism, and the Star of David on one side, an equation side, and then on the other side of it, all of the world's evils. Racism, colonialism, apartheid, and then it escalates into genocide and, um, and Nazism. And part of the placard strategy, which was launched by the Soviet Union in the 60s, was to launder it through the respectability and the authority of international bodies. So as soon as the UN decides that racism is bad, immediately Zionism as racism is brought to the United Nations in 1975. That's a classic placard strategy. Then in 2001, in a UN conference in Durban on fighting racism, it turns into a hate fest and promotes the charge of apartheid against Israel. And this is what we're seeing now. So the idea is uh, we no longer have the church as a form of authority. We no longer have pseudoscience to give the authority to the idea of racialized Jews. So now we have the courts, international bodies, you, uh, international so-called human rights organizations to give the imprint of authority to very traditional charges against the collective Jew as evil. That's quite an indictment. Um, I'm not even sure how to unpack that, but that, that, that that's a fascinating take on all this. Let me switch gears for just a minute and, uh, and talk about UNRWA. You wrote this terrific book uh, about UNRWA. Uh, with uh, Adi Schwartz. And um, obviously, UNRWA is in the headlines right now. What is your take on what needs to happen to this very rotten UN agency? So we need to understand what UNRWA is. And the best way to understand what UNRWA is is to talk about UNCRA. Uh, the K is for Korea. UNRWA is, was established as a temporary agency to settle the Arab refugees from the war of 1948. There was nothing special about there being refugees from that war. Empires receded, new borders and states were established, and people settled and moved on. The Koreans were settled in three to four years, and look at South Korea today. But the Arab refugees, now called Palestinians, refused to settle because they knew that if they settled, it means that the Jewish state gets to stay. And that was unacceptable as far as they were concerned. So what they did is they hijacked UNRWA 
and make sure that it never closed, which is why it's still a temporary agency, and that generation after generation, it would register and perpetuate them as still being refugees from Palestine, thereby again, giving a cloak of respectability to this idea that the war of 1948 is not over and that one day they might still win it to their original cause of that war, which is no Jewish state. So from the beginning, UNRWA was essentially hijacked by the Arab refugees themselves, by the Palestinians, to serve the cause of establishing a permanent question mark over the very existence of the Jewish state. When we understand that this is the goal of UNRWA and everything else it does is merely a facade in order to preserve its real goal. On October 7th, we even saw something more. One of the Hamas leaders went on TV and when he was asked, why are you not letting the people of Gaza use the tunnels for their protection? They said, the people of Gaza are not our responsibility. That's on the UN. Now, the idea that the Palestinians are responsible for nothing and that it's all on the UN is an old Palestinian view. And what we understand after October 7th is that UNRWA does not only perpetuate the conflict until it could be won to the Arab side, it also releases the Arab murderers from any responsibility for their population while they are trying to liberate Palestine from the river to the sea. So once you understand that those are UNRWA's two goals, keep the conflict alive at, until it could be won to the Arab cause, and in the interim, free the Arab terrorists from any responsibility for the civilian population so that they can liberate Palestine from the river to the sea, I think it becomes crystal clear that this is not an organization for which alternatives need to be found. It just has to disappear. Uh, you know, during the years when I called for dismantling UNRWA, people said, but what's the alternative? Hamas will be responsible for the schools? And I would say, yes, that's actually better. And people thought, oh, that's weird. And I'm saying, look, if Hamas actually had to pay the salaries of teachers, maybe they would have had less money to build some of the tunnels. Maybe they would have been busier actually taking care of their population rather than being released for the massacre of Israelis. Uh, we would not have been in the position where people read that during the fighting, Israel killed 85 UN employees. And immediately people imagine some nice, uh, Swedes and Norwegians who came to Gaza to help its desperate people, other than realizing that those are actually Palestinians who were born in Gaza, living in Gaza, who share the ideology of liberating Palestine from the existence of a Jewish state from the river to the sea. Uh, we hear about Israel uh, attacking UN facilities. Those are just Palestinian schools that are part of the Palestinian system of indoctrination of generation after generation that tells every young Palestinian that they have only one duty in this world, which is again to liberate Palestine from the river to the sea. So we will all benefit immensely from that organization not existing at all. Well, what do you say about, I mean, there are people out there right now who are saying that there is now a refugee problem that has emerged as a result of the war and that uh, maybe UNRWA has a role to play. 
So first of all, just they're not refugees. They are internally displaced. They are still very much in Gaza and have moved for the sake of their own uh, safety and security away from every time the main theater of fighting. But even now, we know that UNRWA is completely useless. Even those who still try to claim Americans, unfortunately still some Israelis, that UNRWA is responsible and really valuable for uh, making sure that aid gets to Palestinians. We know that this is not the case. We know that the aid, first and foremost, serves Hamas. Uh, and we know that there are other means of delivering it. And UNRWA is essentially, UNRWA itself goes on social media to say we're unable to carry out uh, our duties. So again, I think we would all benefit from ending this scam, this facade, this lie, and dealing with the Palestinians as Palestinians, rather as some perpetual refugees awaiting the day of their victory over the Jewish state. Okay, real quick before we wrap up, um, just you've over the years you and I, you and I have had I think really interesting exchanges where I've heard you talk about kind of the character of Israel. You had your finger on the pulse of modern Zionism. How do you describe what has been going on inside Israel? I know this is a big question. We only have probably about a minute or so to answer it, but what would you say the biggest change that you've seen since ten seven? How would you describe what's happening inside the country? I think people are acutely aware that everything hangs in the balance, that this is not just one more round, one more fighting in Gaza, that the very question of the future of the Jewish state, its survival, is what at stake now, and that we cannot afford not to win this war. We can no longer afford to have a government of mediocre people, and I'm being generous, uh, that the Jewish people precisely because we're under such really genocidal, declared genocidal attacks with global support from the anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic ideology of the moment, we cannot afford anything less than excellence. Okay, we'll leave it there. Enat, thank you so much for joining us today on the FDD Morning Brief. Thank you. Okay, here's what my FTD colleagues are tracking today. FTD senior fellow and international law expert Ord Kittry is keeping a close eye on those proceedings at The Hague. A former Defense Department attorney, Ord has written extensively on the baselessness of South Africa's claim against Israel. He's also made the case for why these proceedings undermine the very credibility of the international legal system. My colleague Craig Singleton, the director of FTD's China program, should be your go-to source for this weekend's president presidential election in Taiwan. The results of that vote will have far-reaching consequences for the island nation's relationship with Beijing and with Washington. This is high drama, folks. If you're not watching, you need to. And finally, experts from across FDD's research portfolios are out with a new January edition of our Biden administration foreign policy tracker. This product looks at the trend lines of the administration's policies across 16 of America's most pressing foreign policy issues. As always, the FTD team calls balls and strikes on where the administration is doing well and where they need a serious course correction. I definitely encourage you to check it out. That's it for today. Read all of our expert analysis at FDD.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD. 
and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at fdd.org invest. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you Monday for another Morning Brief. My guest will be Bill Roggio of FDD's Long War Journal. He's an expert on all those pesky Shiite militias that we've been tracking over the last several months. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FTD. Thank you.